You are listening to the Logos broadcast with Fergus James Murphy. Today I'm here with a woman who, in her own words, is a feisty journalist at large, a full-time flibberty gibbet, a sporadic strumpet, who can be found in media scrums, proper pubs, and the occasional mosh pit. So Lee's hand. <laughs> Talk about my own words coming I, back to haunt me. <laughs> I know. What were you thinking? First of all, what is a flibberty gibbet? I've never seen that word. Well, it is. It means a flighty, a flighty young one, basically. Okay. Um, it turns up actually in the lyrics of "How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria" in uh, "The Sound of Music." Okay. And I always like the sound of it, so I just decided it's a word that should be rehabilitated along with the word strumpet. Exactly. I'm a huge fan of the word strumpet as well. From the book. Yeah. No. Yeah. Or but it came up in the book. Which, it came up in the book, yeah. but it's one of those words. It's like trollop and strumpet. You know, there are kind of words to describe, you know, women of, well, you know, technically women of low repute, but yes. really just feisty women who would yeah. behave, you know? Yes. And uh, so I'm on a kind of a campaign, one woman campaign to kind of rehabilitate those words. Definitely. So anytime I get a chance to put them in somewhere, I do. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're right there on, on the internet for, for all to see on your Twitter. And you're very active there. Um, and one other thing I want to ask you about, you said by the hokey in a little text today. I hadn't a clue what you were talking about. So... What on earth does that mean? By the hokey. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's again, it's an old fashioned expression meaning, meaning, you know, my word or by God or begob, really. Okay. It's a sort of a, it's just a, you know, yeah, a sort of take, slightly taken aback, but in an amused fashion, okay. you know, it, 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 there's no harm ever implied. Okay. But again, you know, I do like quirky language and I'm a huge fan of, of, you know, if I come across a new word, I'm immediately you know, looking it up to see, yeah. you know, what, what the roots of it Where are it and from? the etymology of it. And, yeah. you know, because I always live in fear of you. One of my, my kind of secret fears is using a word in the wrong context. Like, that's one of the great fears I have. It's a dumb one, mm. but... I oh, know it's not. You don't you know, want to appear stupid. No, I really don't want to appear... I don't appear... You know, I mean, I... You know, I'm a, I'm a wordsmith. That's what I do for a living. I mm -hmm. use words as... Words are my tool. Yes. Um. So I really live in dread of, you know, being becoming the butt of, you know, jokes by using some word really badly. Yeah. So I always... When I come across a word I don't know, I will ask. Yes. Uh, if there's somebody around cleverer than me, which mm -hmm. there often is, because I should have even said cleverer than I there, um, or else I'll just go and look it up. And especially you are writing, so if you make a mistake, it's on record instead of in a quick chat, you know. So the Very stakes true. are higher in your writing. They we, are. I was listening to you talking today to, to someone else on, on a, in an interview, and you were born in the Coombe, so you're, you're a real dove then. <laughs> you God and, Almighty. And Fair right play back. to you, I'm, did I'm your sorry. research, well, yes. I'm, I'm going right back to the very start. And I learned an awful lot about it on the, on the, on the 145. Damn it, I thought that nobody would actually listen to that yeah, thing. You, there you go. You need to be careful with, around people like, like journalists. This, in this case, is actually Aon O'Rourke, who's it not was. a journalist. But he, I suppose he's acting like one. And, and he, he did a good job. So can you tell me about your baptism? Do you mind me asking about that story? <laughs> baptism. What happened there? Yeah, um, my, my name is a complicated kind of issue. Um, it's gone through several... More uh, metamorphoses during my uh, my life, and my parents decided that they wanted to christen me Lisa, which of course was back in the day a very unusual name. Yeah, so I was taken from the hospital from the coom to the church uh, to be baptised, which was the, you know common enough in those days. Um, so my mother, as far as well, I don't as far as the story goes, I think my mother was still in hospital, and uh, my grandparents were all present and my godparents and I was you know brought up to the font and 
they were asked what I, what I wanted to be called, and the priest said, that's not a saint's name, so she can't be baptised. Lisa. So, yeah, so my father just went, fine, so she can just stay heathen, and took me under his arm and marched out to the church, um, to the great uh, acclaim and applause of my uh, godmother, who was a very feisty woman as well. Okay. Um, so, anyway, there was an emergency somewhat outside the church, and the grandparents all got into conclave. So a great sort of Irish solution was what came up, which both my my grandmothers uh, had Elizabeth in their name. My maternal grandmother was Elizabeth May and my paternal grandmother was Catherine Elizabeth. Okay. So they did point out reasonably that my na- the name my chosen name was a derivation okay. of uh, Elizabeth. Yeah. So we could just do the classic thing and uh, basically baptise me, um, you know, Elizabeth and christen me Elizabeth and then I can just be known as, as, as whatever they, I wanted for the yeah, rest of my life. It was up to you. It was, yeah. So that was the sort of arrangement. So, I yeah. mean, all my official, all my official, you know, documents, I'm called Elizabeth, which uh, did prove handy at one stage, a brief stage when I was signing on the dole. Um, wow. Yeah, because I could sort of sign on the dole and just write, I think I'm probably past the statute of limitations at yeah, this yeah, stage. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so... I mean, it's a ga- it's a name I've never used, and even all my official documentation now is all, you know, my passport and all my bank cards and all that are by or my name, Lise, L-I-S-E. Okay. Now. So you you made that change. Yeah. And and that was, a, in that case, your father bowed down, let's say, or your family adhered to the wishes of the church. We are living in a completely different yeah. Ireland now. So can you tell me about your experience of that Ireland, and specifically, in relation to religion, and yeah. and how much adherence have you? paid throughout your life to, to that tradition, if any? Well, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that the compromise, I, I mean, I always admired my old lad for, you know, taking the stand anyway. And yeah. I think he actually, to be honest with, I really don't think he bowed to the church. I think he bowed to the will of his, parents, his formidable parents and yeah. his formidable in-laws, to yes. be absolutely honest with you. Mm. I think they were scarier, a scarier prospect crossing them than the church. I get you. Um, well, I mean, I was educated by the nuns. Um, I was educated by presentation nuns in junior school and then the Loretta nuns if, uh, throughout my senior years. Okay. Um, and I would say religion, um, no, I really kind of opted out of the whole religion thing quite early on. Um, I remember being in religion class and I must have been still in very early senior school and the nun was admonishing us about the dangers of boys and all their their primitive urges. Mm. And she suggested that we were going to sit on a boy's knee, that we should have a a book, the width of a telephone directory between us, uh, so to prevent him having any impure thoughts. Mm. And I remember raising my hand and asking if um, the yellow pages would suffice. So uh, I think at that stage I sort of realised that, you know, I was kind of going, this isn't for me, yeah. you know. Um, so I, you know, and I think I actually even managed to pick a name, some really obscure saint for my confirmation, Barbara, I think. And then it turns out, I think she had been struck off oh the list goodness. of saints because it turned out she wasn't a real saint after all. It was some specific Barbara anyway, yeah. which I thought at the time I didn't know this, but I thought it kind of was, you know, somehow symbolic really. Um, so... No, I mean, I think, you know, very quickly, I suppose my sort of urges to be a feminist, I mean, clashed very early on mm. with the strictures of the Catholic Church. Um, you know, in Ireland, particularly with women, you know, our beef against the Catholic Church has mm. almost completely been gendered. I mean, mm. you had things like, you know, it, you know, this, the, the church had such a 
a grip on how the state was run. I mean, you had yeah. the, mar the marriage bar, which by which married women had to, you know, working in, in yeah. yeah in the public in the public service had to leave uh, when they got married. I mean, that was only lifted in the early seventies, nineteen seventy two, I think. Mm. Um, and you know, then you had the pressure from been brought to bear on the government to hold the, ref the, the, the very first referendum um, um, in 1983. You'd think I'd know at this stage, but my brain is fried at numbers. Um, you know, to insert the uh, Eighth Amendment into yeah. the Constitution, which was a total ban, obviously, on, uh, on abortion in the state. And um, so religion just became incompatible with my own feminist beliefs. Okay. There wasn't, they could, I couldn't square them in, a, in any shape or form. Um, so I found it much easier just to, you know, there was no sundering from the church. It was just a drifting away because Fair it just enough. really had nothing to, you know, it, it just didn't square with the way I wanted to live my life and my own belief system, so to speak. So I just want to pick up on two things. Mm. The first thing you mentioned, the, the telephone book, and in the, in the American South, they kind of joke, leave room for Jesus. So it's the same, literally, yeah. you were leaving room for whatever, to prevent the, yeah. those urges. It's a funny kind of That's interesting. way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. Obviously, their, their religious tradition is uh, quite different from ours. But another thing that, that strikes me, someone pointed out before that in Ireland we had this, I don't want to use the word obsession, but I can't think of a better word. The obsession with the Virgin Mary, who gave birth and did her duty as a woman, as it were, without having sex or having yeah. sinned. So you were supposed to be uh, an unsinful woman, but still reproduce as, as an Irish woman, or as a, as, yeah. a, as a good, dutiful Catholic, do you know? It was, a, it was a funny contradiction that, that doesn't square at all with, as you say, your, your value system. Well, I mean, it couldn't because the Catholic Church, you know, had, you know, the, they were just so, you know, adamantine about, you know, how women should behave and, mm. you know, they're, you know, they, the Catholic Church in Ireland wanted to, well, everywhere, but particularly in Ireland because it had such a hold kind of over the state, you know, they wanted to interfere with every aspect of your reproductive system, you know, your sex life, how you behaved, you know, in term, you know, with relation to contraception. Mm. You know, and these were just ways of controlling, mm. you know, half the population. Mm. Um, every single liberalisation of, you know, contraception, contraceptive laws were fought, you know. Yes. I mean, to the government the and the yeah. state went, you know, the government and the church, or the state and the church went, you know, eventually when the, the state began to kind of, you know, stand up for the, you know, the people supposed to represent, mm. you know, there was a... It became increasingly a matter of the two going toe to toe, um, and it was all very much. You can't look at the separation of church and state in this country without looking at it through the prism of rights, mm. reproductive rights, and the struggle, you know, to to separate, you know, the, to get the church out of your, well, your own business. It has been, yeah, it has been a manifestation of that separation, hasn't it? That mm. the, these changes in in the legal system and, and in politics, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge. I mean, jumping forward a good bit, but I think it's relevant just pertinent to this particular topic um you know for me probably one of the more dramatic moments in that struggle was actually in july 2011 um and kenny had only been t-shock a few months mm. and he in an almost empty doll because nobody was expecting this he stood mm. up and he gave what is now called his cloin speech and that to me, I was one of the, I think, three journalists that was happened to be on the, sitting in the press gallery in, wow. in Leinster House in our parliament that day. And 
I was blown away by it. I was literally... Impressed? I was completely blown away because it was a beautifully written speech. This was one that he had, obviously he and his scriptwriters had given enormous thought to. The language was beautiful. Really? The sentiments were thought out. But he was doing something that many other Tishik had failed to do before mm -hmm. him, and he was drawing a definite line in the sand. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just saying, you cannot this, look at the damage that the state has done through institutional abuse in this in this land, and you you we have to separate church and state. This mm. is you know I, I it was a, to me it was an extraordinary moment. You know it, it was really interesting. You could almost say it was to me. You know I think in retrospect a lot of people will look at that and say that's really the moment where you know Ireland really came of age. Wow. Yeah. I think it was. The, I genuinely think it was that important. You know wow. I mean a, a lot more seismic things have happened. You know mm. you, you could go on and look at. You know the incredibly seismic events that were the two, you know, the two referendums yes. on social issues yes. that passed in twenty fifteen, which was the um, marriage equality referendum and then the uh, abortion referendum in twenty eighteen last mm. year. But I think, in a way, almost the Taoiseach's client speech that day. I think that that was sort of the official, you know, he's, the Taoiseach of the land stood in our parliament and made this declaration. Mm. You know, and this isn't a radical Trotskyist anti-Catholic man. That's what made it all the more powerful. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what you said, nailed it. That's mm. what made it so powerful. This came from a West of Ireland man brought up in the, in the Catholic tradition mm. who was a mass going mm. Catholic. Yeah. Um, and that's, this wasn't, you know, his tarnish at the time was Eamon Gilmore who was, you know, a, like a noted, complete infidel, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so if he had made the speech, it really wouldn't have been mean. as yeah. powerful because it came from somebody from within, inside yes. the system. That's what just made it all the more dramatic. So I know you're kind of you're you're touching on it, but but can you give me a little the, the essence of the value system that you followed that wasn't obviously wasn't the Catholic Church? Who did you read? Who did you listen to? What kind of ideological uh, philosophy did you follow, or who who did you you know who did you admire in that sense? Well, or I mean, there, was it just you? All about was it your views? Well, I mean, I you know, I obviously took a lot of my my own non-religious values from my parents. I mean, okay. I had a great upbringing. My parents were very hardworking. Both worked hard uh, inside and outside the home. Um, you know, they both brought us up to myself and my sister. There's just two of us. You know, to you know, be confident and be people, and didn't put massive weights of expectations on us. Um, so I, you know, I was allowed space to kind of think my own thoughts and oh. they nothing was imposed upon me yes um and i then you know when i left school i did go to college i went to ucd and i studied english and, and classics and you know so it, within that there was an awful lot of reading and philosophy you know contained in that a lot yes. of talking i was opened up to a huge amount of you know literary influences and ideas that i'd never have you know have encountered before i mean i was reading everybody from you know, people like, you know, André Gide and Jean Genet to like Solzhenitsyn, then I was wow. reading, you know, then I discovered that, and that was before I discovered America. Yes. And, you know, I would say that a lot of my philosophies or, you know, what maybe formed me very much as, as a writer and a thinker was just American literature. Really? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I just completely fell in love with America through books and through, you cool. know, through the writers. Um, the good stuff. The good stuff, yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I read, you know, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, and I, I nearly died. Really? I mean, I nearly died. And I nearly died a second time. I was resurrected and nearly died a second time when I read um, Hunter S. Thompson, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, mm. and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And simply because they opened up a world where, a, a, you know, a 
a person could be a writer, a journalist, but not have to be a beard stroking serious, you, you know, journalist, you know, that sort of wrote various serious things that you could like actually... Like a Mike Mordua kind of person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, and this was, you know, this to me was yeah. just, you know, this was mind-blowing, yeah. you know. Um, and I, you know, so, you know, Ireland in the 80s, I mean, there was a, you know, there was a lot of, you know, students were pro... We, you know, we know money, we know mm. bread, so, you know, for the crack, we go out and, do, out, out and have a protest, you know, because it was a way just to get together with your mates. Mm. So, you know, I mean, there was, a, you know, there a lot of student activity in the sort of early 80s and throughout the 80s, because, you know, Ireland was in a, the teeth of an economic recession. So, you know, we protested, we hung out and we talked and we went and we saw bands and, you know, yeah. there was a, you know, there was a huge, a massive, you know, artistic scene in our, you know, then, and particularly Sounds the musical like... scene was taking off, but it was all underground. I mean, mm. you know, I mean, Dublin itself was pretty grotty. I mean, there wasn't mm. a lot going on. People, you know, tourists were a rarity. I mean, mm. you know, you'd, you'd, you could spot an American tourist because they were dressed in Kelly Green. So it's not like Broadway, you're, you're saying. It's not like the West End where no, it's this no. big, glitzy kind of affair. It was all underground. Yeah. It was like small little, you know, bars with rooms upstairs or downstairs and bands like, you know, I'm, trash I'm and away. the commitments. And you was know what? You, it was so accurate. And, you know... I, a few years ago, I actually rewatched the commitments and it's I laughed brilliant. my ass off it's again. So but I remember looking at Dublin and going, yeah, I'd forgotten just how really crap it was. But the van know. is another. Yeah, I mean, that was Dublin. I mean, yeah. there was just graffiti everywhere. You know, you know, in these, you know, people graduated from school or, or left school or graduated from college and just scarpered out of Ireland. You know, they went to like London or they yeah. went to America, you know, illegally. Um, and, or, you know, in an undocumented way to use the language du jour. Um, but you know, Dublin was pretty kippy. Mm. You know, the, the, I mean, the bright light, and again, would have been the dandelion market. You know, that was so. That's now held up. The dandelion market in Dublin was, was essentially that? an open air um, rag market, which was uh, situated where the Stephen's Green shopping centre is now. Okay. And it sold everything from with stalls selling everything from antiques to vinyl records. It, they had live music. It was the very first place that U2 played. Wow. Um, and lots of that sort of whole Dublin band scene began to bubble up. Mm. Um, like the Dandelion Market has grown in, I suppose you'd say, it has grown in mythology in, in Ireland now. Right. You know, as many people, you know, were at the Dandelion Market that have been to, you know, 2000, you know, All-Ireland Finals in Crow Park. You wow. know, like it's completely exaggerated. I get you. Know, sorry, yeah, everybody, yeah. you know, everybody Everyone's says, exaggerated. I was in the Dando when they absolutely when weren't. Or whatever, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, they weren't. But, you know, when you again look back at sort of archive footage of the Dandelion Market, it's so grotty. Really? But we loved it because yeah. it was kind of, you know, this really cool boho market and it was ours, you know? That's... So it was, it, it was interesting. There was lots going on in Dublin, but, you know, we most people just really didn't have money. You know, you just didn't have money. I love what you're saying about Dublin. You clearly are part of the Dublin furniture and you know the little spots that someone of my generation wouldn't like. I'll give you one example. When the Bernard Shaw was closed, there was this outcry from people of my generation as if it was some bastion of Dublin. And I'm kind of thinking, listen, it's just some kind of trendy hipster bar. Like, there's another in Rathmines What's it called? Do you know the one I'm talking about? The Blackbird or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. And there's another one, Copan. And, and it's like the coffee shops. I just see that as a little bit of a fad. Not a fad dismissively, but you know what I mean? It's, mm. not, it's not as institutional to Dublin's heritage as I think it's made out to be, personally. So, can you give me some spots, some haunts, as we were talking about, that 
that typify the best of Dublin or, or your memories of Dublin that that can still be got to today? Ah, that can still be got to. You see, that's like we're key. in one now. Are, are we in one now? Well, we're now sitting in the. It's it's an upstairs bar called the Library Bar in the Central Hotel, which is just off Grafton Street, and it's a you know a beautiful old style wooden dark wooden floors, wooden paneling. It looks old, mm. and it could have been here for ages. I've certainly been coming here for years. It has that sort of timeless feel to it, um, but. It's interesting because just as you ask that question, I'm trying to think of the kind of the haunts that have been around forever, you know, the, the places that, you know, we would have, that would have been around and active in, say, the, you know, late 80s, 90s. And there's very few of them left. I mean, you know, the, the sort of the network of big music venues where a lot of the bands cut their chops are all gone. Um, really? You know, places like, there was a place called McGonagall's, which is again on South Ann Street, just off uh, Grafton Street. The Bagot Inn was the storied, most legendary one, which was a room at the back of the Bagot Inn bar up on Bagot Street, which was probably the premier venue. Really? There was the underground bar, which understandably enough was an underground bar off a small bar on Dame Street. Um, they're, I've heard of all these places. They're all, I mean, and they're it's all so long sad. gone. You it's know, a shame. yeah, it is a shame. Um, I mean, there are still, there are now a lot of good venues, you know, music venues in in mm. town. But that, the sort of the network that of that had this incredibly vibrant sort of live band scene, which is what sustained us all through the, the late eighties. Yeah. Um, they're all like they are literally all gone. I mean, there are still, you know. Pubs. We were very close to a pub um, called, called Grogan's around the court, which is on the street parallel to Grafton Street. That's there a long time okay. now, but that's more of a literary haunt. That was a pub that was frequented by the likes of Paddy Kavanagh, really? Brendan Bean. Yeah, all the kind of the kind of the, the the grumpy old men of Irish literature. They all kind of hung out there. Cool. Um, there's a very there's actually a very good podcast episode called Three Castles of a podcast series called Three Castles Burning that's done by. A guy called Donald Donald Fallon, who's very very, who's a great historian in Dublin. If you ever wanted to anything on him, but he goes into the history of of Grogan's, and you know you can often tell the history of of Dublin, you know, through the bars. You mm. know, there's Toners on Bagot Street, which is another very famous bar, and it reputedly is the only bar that W. B. Yeats drank in in Dublin. Really, he went in once, tried a drink, didn't like it, and left. Really? But that was, was enough he a to more that, kind of austere kind of guy, was he? Or? Yeah, he wouldn't have been as much crack now as some really? of the others. Um, okay. But the you know the, a lot of the I mean Dublin really has changed. You know, venue wise, you know, it has changed. The whole city has changed. It's undergone several metamorphoses. I mean, you had. You know the, the the Celtic Tiger, mm. you know, arrived in you know the early two thousands, and the city exploded with wealth and you know shops selling all kinds of frou frou and falderols and a bit like you were talking about coffee shops earlier on, you know, and they all were swept away. You know, when the the cold winds of the yeah. of the of the recession arrived. Like Harry Crosby, or is that his name, Harry Crosby? Yeah, What's I mean Harry name? Crosby. You yeah, know, Harry. well Harry Crosby developed the. One of the great things he forward? did was he built the Point yeah. Depot. I mean, there was nothing down at that. You know, the but Point he Depot. Collapsed. Um, well, he's still in business. I mean, he, you know, the the developers who all died, you know, financially as opposed to actually literally in the crash. Like some of them kind of retreated for a few years and licked their wounds and are are back in They're action back. now. You know, um, I mean, I, at one stage, I know I'm jumping around here a bit, but yeah. uh, at one stage in the teeth of the recession. Um, I, in my role as a journalist, I was at a press conference being held in the office of the uh, governor of the central bank okay. at the time. And his office 
was in one of the very few elevated buildings in Dublin, which was the central bank on its old, in its old uh, building on Dame Street, and he was up on the 10th or 11th floor, okay. which is very high in terms of Dublin architecture, obviously. Yeah. And I remember before the press conference started, looking at the window, or you had a sort of panoramic view from, you know, across the Liffey and the whole way across the north side and all the way down the Quays, and thinking, my God, there isn't a single crane over Dublin. And it was quite an extraordinary sight, and it really struck me because the years preceding the crash, you know, Dublin had just been overhung mm. by cranes. Yeah. And now, yeah. 2019, if you walk down the Quays, there are cranes everywhere. They're back. You know, in one particular yeah. spot down, yeah. you know, which has been developed on the North Inner Keys, yeah. I counted 13 cranes the other day, and that's just in one spot. Like, they're back. Yes, you know, 100%. It's a, yeah, so. Like Fianna Fáil. <laughs> yeah, well. there, there's, there's so much to talk about. I, I need to... Yeah, rock on. I, I need to rock on because I, I re this could go on for, for a month, this conversation. <laughs> well, and it I'm can't on go it. on any longer than an hour. Be, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your different roles as a journalist because you weren't always in, <laughs> in the in the in the doll for example no. where you now reside from no. time to time so can you one one particular title caught my eye social diarist mm. what is that and and what what were you writing about in that capacity well i suppose career wise you know if i was a you know a taxi driver taking from the airport you'd have me in the cop shop by now because my 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 route in to through journalism has been <laughs> you know scenic and you know and extremely meandering yeah i mean i started off i suppose as a rock writer in the sunday tribune uh writing a rock column um, covering the you know the, the Dublin scene, which mm. in the late eighties was you know as I said incredibly interesting, um, and I then moved to the Sunday. I was poached by the Sunday Independent as a feature writer, rock writer, uh, improbably f for almost a year, uh, fashion editor, which was I still look back as it was like some kind of fever dream really? because all I ever wore were jeans, Doc Martens, and T-shirts. But anyway, um, in their infinite wisdom, they they gave me the job for a year, and I I did enjoy it. Mm. Um, Social Diarist was kind of happened by accident. In the Sunday Independent, uh, when I was working there, there was probably Ireland's most, one of Ireland's most famous ever social diarists, a woman called Terry Keane. Oh, yeah. Um, who ruled the back page. I mean, really? she was the doyen of, of social you know, diary. Is that just gossip diarying. then? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically a gossip column whereby, you know, Dublin had a pretty lively night scene. So, you know, you'd go out and about, or Terry, she, she, she wrote this column um, along with um, Anne Harris, who was the, the deputy editor of the paper and the features editor. Um, you know, she would glean gossip. She knew everybody. I mean, Terry Keane knew everybody. She was plugged really? into it. She knew everybody extremely well. She knew one person extremely well, as it turned out, um, because it subsequently turned out. Uh, that she had had a long-term affair with the then Taoiseach. That was the English woman. She was, she was English? No, no, she was Irish. Oh, anyway, sorry. Yeah, go on, yeah, yeah. Well, it turned out that you know that Terry Keane had had a long-term affair with uh, Charles Hawley, who had been Taoiseach uh, at various intervals during this. But you know, she was very well connected, gossip-wise, and she used to do this column, and it was genuinely a huge deal. Everybody used to buy this independent to read what Great, Terry yeah. Keane was writing about. Um, but every now and then, Terry would go on holidays, or she would go. You know, she she was going abroad, or yes. she was doing something. And I don't know why, but one day I got tapped up just to sort of stand in. Now, doing it under her own name, I won't write anything unless my name's on it. That's one of my rules generally. Of course. Um, unless I'm writing, say, you know, the leaders for, the, you know, the, the editorials for a paper, which okay. is completely different. But anything that I write, I will always put my name to. So I used to, I used to do my own diary, social yeah. diary. And you know what? It was probably the best training I ever had as a writer. Mm. 
simply because I was terrible at gossip. Um, I saw, I just saw, basically saw no reason why I should write about who was going out with who. It just didn't interest me particularly. Yeah. So I used to disguise the fact that I had absolutely no gossip to impart by writing kind of, you know, in a funny way. You yeah. know, so I, if I thought if I was got people laughing, they wouldn't actually notice that there's absolutely bugger all, you know, to the story itself. Yeah. So I mean, through that, I suppose I, that was probably how I sort of developed my style, to yes. be absolutely honest with you. And um, it, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was such a fun thing to do because, you know, you basically got to go around to every book launch and every first night opening of a play or yeah. any black tie do and you got to eat and drink for free, um, you know, and you just got to meet loads of interesting people. I mean, it was, you know, for a period of time, it was enormous fun and I thoroughly enjoyed doing it. Cool. And I did it in the Sunday uh, Tribune. Subsequently, I went back to Sunday Tribune um, when Matt Cooper took over as editor and did that for a while. But, you know... I kind of got bored after a while. Really? I mean, there's only so much of that you can do. Some people are lifers, but frankly, I got absolutely cheesed off with it after a really? while. And it was limited. Yeah, I, you know, I just thought, no, I've had enough of that now, thanks. And, you know, I was, you know, I was obviously just more interested at that stage in, you know, proper news and politics. Yes. And, uh, you know, I had been doing, working as a news reporter for years as well. I mean, Social Diary was only one part of your week. You still worked okay. as, a, as a news editor. I okay. didn't have the luxury of just doing that. Um, so, you know, I, it kind of evolved, you know, once I got to the Sunday Tribune, I really went in a hundred different directions. Um, I mean, I was doing news, I became the arts and culture editor, um, I launched, I designed and launched the Sunday Tribune magazine, you know, so I was sort of doing an awful lot of different things. Yeah. Um, then I, you know, I was over, I, I spent a few years living in, in New York. Uh, two years living in New York and I did absolutely nothing except travel around and live in New York which was extremely like enjoyable. Like an or something? Just like a just lazy ass bird who loved New York really to be honest you know I mean I suppose I was living a slightly Christian existence except I wasn't lounging around I was you know bar hopping and having a great life um, but I you know when I when I came back from the States and settled back down in, in Ireland I went back to the Irish Independent and you know then I was doing much more news and features and I really got into you know, I sort of got into more writing more political things okay. and I found a wonderful niche there, um, which was sort of what I call news colour writing. And I, I think that's probably the most interesting and enjoyable thing I've done in a way, because um, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. You know, if you have a, a big news event, it could be anything. It could be an election. It could be the funeral of, you know, f of somebody following a... Yeah, or it also just could be, you know, the funeral of maybe somebody young or somebody, okay, who, somebody sorry, died yeah. very tragically. Yeah. Um, it could be the playing champions championships. It could be the Ryder Cup. It could be anything. Well, and I'm, a bad example, of yeah. So you know, I'd be packed off along with the news journalist, and they do the hard news, like you know, the the actual news lines yes, out, yes. and I'd be there to paint the verbal picture, you know. Yeah. So it was kind of people who weren't there or didn't, you know, could, could get a sense of what happened, you know, what it looked like, what the day was like, how people felt. You know, but colour is the best word for it. I remember the first time I met you, I was doing work experience with a senator in the Oireachtas and she offloaded me for a day to Fiat Kelly. Oh yes. And he brought me around to meet all these journalists yeah. and I remember distinctly meeting Michael O'Regan and he was very friendly and you were very friendly and oh. you were telling me about uh, writing colour pieces and, and basically you just take a, a kind of a light-hearted view on the theatre of of Irish politics at, at the moment. And, yeah. and one thing I've written down here, when I, whenever I've seen you in the, in the press gallery in the Dáil, because you can see, as you know, from the, 
the visitors, yeah. what do you call that? The visitors gallery. The visitors yeah. gallery, you can see the press gallery. Yeah. And you always have your kind of head tilted and your, your <laughs> some kind of smirk on your face, like you're clearly seeing it. Not that you're not taking it seriously, but you see, you're looking for the kind of quirks. Yeah. And the atmosphere, and you're not just looking for the boring kind no. of copy and paste, you know, what this is what Michal no. Martin said about X. Yeah. You know, so it's a lovely, it's a lovely job that you do. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, you know, that's the interesting thing, you know, when some, you know, the, the closest, when I'm trying to describe what colour writing is, it's kind of, I always say, it's like, you know, you finish work, you're meeting your best pal or your partner for a beer and you settle down at a bar, two bar stools and your companion turns to you and says, so, you know, what kind of day did you have? What happened today? And you tell them, you know, wait, I'll tell you what happened. You know, the Taoiseach said this and God almighty. And then there was this row and God, you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. Yeah. And you, you that's how you write it. You know, it's sort of yes. you're just trying to draw people into the story. Yes. And, you know, and it's a massively enjoyable thing to do. I mean, it, it is. And, you know, any time I was involved in a row with the news desk, uh, you know, particularly say when I worked in the Irish Independent, um, or, you know, I would always just turn around and my, my, my final line was always, well, the colours are like the only thing anybody reads in this bloody thing anyway, you know? <laughs> but it's it was true, true or not. I would like to think it's true. It may not have been. you can get the news on RTE, you know? You can't get Lee's hand in the headlines well, on news now, you know? Well, I mean, I think, you know, colour writing, I mean, I, I was also great, very fortunate, you know, to have... Um, and I mean, I wouldn't call her a rival, but she was my my counterpart, I think, is the best word in the Irish Times, Miriam Lord, who is, you know, a colour writer, you know, an absolutely excellent colour writer as well. And I think it was actually worked really well because the two of us, you know, I was in the Irish Independent, she was in the Irish Times. I replaced her in the Irish Independent, essentially, um, eventually after a while. Um, and I think, you know, it was great because it, it, it sort of, it raised, kept my game raised because I knew that you yes. know, I, there was going to be a very high standard in the Irish Times. Um, and I, I, it, that was sort of added to the enjoyment of it, you know, cool. and uh, it was great. And I just, it gave me, I was privileged to see so many, to be at the front seat of so many incredible things that happened Yeah. because I was the colour writer. Because so it gave writer. me, I mean, fine, I, you know, I wrote some decent pieces, but my God, what I got back in return was the mm. opportunity to do some mad stuff, really? you know? Yeah. Wait, what do you mean, what you got back in return? Well, I mean... Not too many journalists, you know, can say that they they've stood in the Oval Office, you know, more than you. once, you know. Um, and you have. And I have, you know. I got to look at various interesting elections, like you know, more recent, more recent years, the Trump election. Yes. Um, I got to cover the last papal, you know, conclave when yes. you know um, the current incumbent Pope Francis was there, and that was all through the fact that I was a colour writer. Yes. Uh, you know, I got to go to. Lots of really, like some of the really fraught, you know, European summits, you know, post Brexit, and I, yes. I obviously, you know, I was in London when the Brexit referendum happened. Wow. So, and I, that's all. You've been around my job that took, yeah, but it was, you know, it was my job that that allowed me to do those things. So. Wonderful. And can you tell me now, because you've been in and out of different newspapers, and the the way I thought about it today was most people when they're laid off work less because you're out of work, but it forces you when you become freelance or whatever, you probably have to work more. Is that fair to say? And you're, you're, you're trying to put more out there. Is that fair? Well, Do you have to work the, harder when you lose your job? Is, yeah. it, is that fair to say, losing well, your I job? Mean, you know? the, yeah, I mean, I left the Irish Independent, um, Independent News Media in um, 
May 2016 under difficult circumstances. Okay. It didn't end well. Okay. Um, but I was very fortunate that I moved more or less immediately straight into the Times Ireland who had set up the, the, the their, their new the edition, edition, their Irish yeah. edition. Yeah. So I kind of more or less seamlessly picked up where I left off, Fair enough. doing more or less exactly the same thing, but in you know a much happier surrounds. And you know I loved the team I worked with, and everybody was fantastic in there, really, really great. Mm. But that end just came to an end um, when it was the operation was effectively shut down in, in the end of June of this year. Okay. Um, you know it's. The Times is part of the Murdoch Empire, and a decision was made somewhere up the line it's that a business, isn't it? to pull the plug on yeah on the the, the Times Ireland edition, which I, I I still think is a terrible shame really? because I think if they had actually put some money into marketing it, um, which there was really no money put into promoting what was actually a really good product, mm. and the editor Richard Oakley, I think his instincts were right that he set up a brilliant online newspaper before moving it into print yes so he actually kind of acted in a counterintuitive way and i think it was really good mm. you know we were picking up subs- subscribers and i think with with proper you know promotion and marketing we could have actually you know thrived but you know the, the decision we made the plug was pulled um and you know about 20 odd journalists you know basically found themselves unemployed quite suddenly mm. now it's a mark of the i suppose level of talent that was there that most of them picked up work almost straight away fair enough and that is in the you know the teeth of a very difficult time for the for the newspaper industry i mean every newspaper every media organization print and broadcasting is undergoing massive contractions at the moment we see it in rte we see it in virgin media uh, across the communicore stations um all print Everybody is, you know, trying, seeking redundancy, you know, people to, to take redundancy packages, you know, cuts to payments or everything. I mean, it's a really difficult time because mm. the whole industry is, you know, under threat, you know, largely from Cat the, yeah, I mean, largely from, you know, people consuming news through things like Facebook and Google and, mm. you know, who've hoovered up, you know, most of the advertising revenue that's out there are now go to the the, the network giants. It's like the Uberization. It's happened to so many industries. Yeah. And yeah. And it's kind of happened to news as well. Like they it has. they take a cut. They do. They do give you some news, but yeah. No, I mean it's not they were you know, it's squeezed, and yeah. you know they're so all newspapers are engaged in this sort of trying to existentialist fight, really, to try and figure out how to keep going, how to harness tech, how to you know. And keep a, up with the you know the the changing way people consume news you know how to finance their their operations. And there's a pretense now that because it's so accessible to write, like I'm doing now, I I write bladder and I put it on my website, and we get news so easily that it's seen. There's a pretense that anyone can be a journalist, but that's not true. No, it's as not you true. Know. No, and I mean this is something I feel quite strongly about, and I don't think I'm being overly optimistic though I am kind of a glass half full kind of last um, but I think that there is a shift back in the public consciousness to a small extent and I hope it's one that will, will, will increase that you know in an area in sort of where we are now which is fraught obviously with fake news yes. and disinformation and misinformation that journalists who are experienced professional trained um, will become more valued and more valuable, both things, um, that they will become in themselves trusted news sources, mm. like they themselves, because they know they have contacts, they know how to gather news, they know how to, you know, how to put it together, they know yeah. how to confirm it. 
Um, and I, you know, I think that this might happen is that even as new sort, you know, the bigger news platforms might suffer hits that the journalists, some journalists themselves will become more trusted. I get you. Um, and I think there's another interesting, and I think it's very much grassroots at this stage, but I, I'm, I'm plugged into it to a certain extent. I think that one of the greatest tragedies, and I think that it's probably responsible to a huge extent for the shocks caused by the Trump uh, election and by the Brexit referendum, in particular those two, is that uh, the vast number of the redundancies in journalism have happened in the regional newspapers, particularly in America. I heard you say um, that, yeah. Yeah, and that meant that, and I've probably talked about this again, so I'll, I'll just, no, of, just... Basically, what happened was, when you take regional journalists and local journalists out of the picture, local communities who are used to having, you know, a, say, a newspaper or a publication which reflects their particular concerns, that... It suddenly goes that, you know, a journalist that they would see at things like local council meetings, residence meetings, protests, local mm -hmm. protests, that they know they could go and, you know, say, look, this is a matter of concern. That conduit is gone. And connection. That absolute connection is gone. And the larger national newspapers and media organisations, you know, used to plug regularly into the regionals to see yeah. what people were thinking on the ground. Yeah. And they didn't have that network anymore. Yeah. And moreover, because of the incredibly sort of stringent cuts to their own budgets in the nationals, when they were covering large events like elections, they would just send, you know, shock troops. They would have shock troops who would just dip in wherever the president or a presidential candidate... Have a shot of whiskey and get out of there. Yeah, you know, yeah. do a quick piece and then scarper yeah. back to, to, to the office because they didn't have the budget to keep them on the road. Yeah. So what was going on on the ground in America, what was going on, on the ground in the north of England, Everybody missed it. Mm. And that was because those journalists aren't there. Now, I am beginning, and it's really small at the moment, but I know of you know, several people who are successfully setting up and now running you know, online kind of local newspapers that are using sort of you know, professional talent and maybe you know, journalists who are, you know, had left the business early or whatever, okay. to sort of you know, to re revive those. Here or over in America? No, I see it here. I okay. see it here. Um, I mean, I can put you in touch with one of those guys if you like. It's be, he'd be very interesting to talk to. Um, and I think that uh, that's part of people understand that you know to to fix broken media, you mm. have to fix it from the ground up yes. and from the grassroots up. And I think even the larger organisations are realising this now. You know. So the the demand, I, I think, yeah, what you say is absolutely right. But the demand for trusted people is increasing. Yeah. And and it won't go away, even though. No, I mean, people will, I mean, you know, print newspapers may well be doomed um, mm. because most people, I mean, the, all the stats point to most people consume their news online or yeah. on various platforms, you know, multimedia platforms. Um, then again, I mean, they did say the vinyl, that vinyl was dead as well and the CD cool. had, well, had, had driven the stake through its heart. So, and here we yeah. are, you know, vinyl yeah. shops, you know, even in Dublin, you've, you know, we've got new uh, yeah. gold discs opening up new branches uh, you know, in several locations. God, so, I they were gone, yeah. yeah so, you know, you never know. Suddenly, you know, newsstands might be bristling again, but yeah. I don't think so. Um, yeah. But people will always need news. They will always need to consume news. Yeah. And they will always, I think, eventually suddenly realise that the vast just soup of information and, you know, that's out there on mm. the internet... They don't have time to kind of like pick through to find try and find the, the the juicy bit you know the good bits. Yes. So, I think that there is an understanding. I know one particular media organisation uh, here in Dublin that is 
currently in the process of um, trying to hire senior reporters. Now, that hasn't happened in a while. How's that? Can you, can you um, that? I'm not sure they've gone public with it yet, okay, so I won't. Enough. You know, okay, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it is the independent, but I don't know whether they've actually advertised the jobs yet, so I'm enough. just not sure. But they, you know, I think there's an understanding that when the crash happened and they were, and when, like, the crash happened and technology exploded at the same time, same which time, was yeah. a perfect storm yes. for media because we lost the advertisers, but also all the media organisations scrambled to try and, you know, catch up with the tech. And in the middle of that, what uh, some of them very incredibly unwisely and very sh short-sightedly did was they did a massive cull of their more expensive senior journalists. Yeah. Which meant that... What you need the most. At a time when really what you need the most are people who have been around the block mm. that, that understand a word called context. Yes. So when something happens, yes. there was somebody there going, you know what, that happened 10 years ago and it actually wasn't that big a deal. Yes. Or, yeah, that actually links back to, to this, or yeah. this. Or, yeah. you know what, we should talk to so-and-so because they were here before. They were all gone. Yeah. And all that institutional memory and all that ability to put things in context vanished. So then you'd have all these, you know, newsrooms getting, yeah, like, you know, or else you just get newsrooms getting in their, you know, their you know, their boxers in a bunch over like some story and then it turned out to be nothing at all mm. because there wasn't anybody senior to go, this is a nothing burger, this is nothing, stop yeah. fussing about it. So that kind I of vanished you. as well. So, I mean, it was just a bad decade for journalism. I right? will say one thing, it's funny you mentioned we don't have time to sift through things to get the quality and that's true up to a point but one fascinating response to this lack of trust in the traditional media is, or lack of, lack of value in it, is this whole thing of podcasting. I hate the word podcast, but it does facilitate long form dialogue between one person and another or more than two people like this one, which the technology has facilitated me. I'm going to stop recording and I'm going to share this in full. And that's amazing. And, and whoever you can listen, the, the reason it's so revolutionary is it doesn't waste your time because you can be sitting on the bus, yeah. you can be cleaning your dishes, you can be driving your car. You can't read a newspaper or watch the news really while you're doing all those things. No. So that, for me, that's the shining light in all of this. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you've, I'm sure you've gone and done interviews with other people. Yeah. In a similar vein. So that's yeah. for, and you're a writer, I know, so it's not fully your realm, but that's what I take from it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, you see, I think the interesting thing about uh, journalists, I think particularly experienced ones, is we, you know, we do tend to be very adaptable, or yes. to use one of those hideous phrases, we tend to be change agile, yes. which is one of those expressions that I would like to put a knife through. But, yes. you know, I mean, I'm not completely haggard old bag, but when I, I started I know, yeah. off, thank you very much, but, you know, just, this is audio. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I started, the very first implement I typed a story on was one of those old Underwood typewriters. Like, it wasn't plugged into anything, it was one of the no. old Underwoods. Really? Ones. And, you know, that you see in black and white movies about newsrooms. That yes. was the first thing. And now I, I write stories on my phone. I get So, it. you know, we have und I've undergone so many, you know, different forms of communication. And I think an awful lot of journalists love the medium of radio and podcasting. I adore podcasting. Mm. Do, I'm, I know your next question is going to be tell me about it, and I won't because it's in development. Hmm. But like every other hack, I have a podcast ready to Deadly. roll in the new year. Deadly. Uh, and I've always loved the format of radio because it's all storytelling. Mm. And I love the intimacy of um, storytelling that you can do on a podcast, exactly like you said. Um, radio, I mean, for instance, well, I was, you know, just recording. Um, a review of the decade uh, for one of the radio stations, one of the shows of one of the radio stations. 
And we had to try, and they were saying, oh, there was two of us, and we had to try and condense the political review into eight minutes, which is Impossible. insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane, it right? Yeah. You, you know, it, it's just, you know, know, you just can't do that, no. you know. Whereas, you, you know, when you, with the podcast, you do have the leisure to go into things. But I think the key thing is, as a journalist, you can also self-edit. So yes. you just don't turn out to be, you know, like early you. blogging, like a guy sitting in his basement, you know, rambling around, you know, about, you know, you know, gaming or something. Gaming or Roswell or, or yeah, yeah, or a girl with makeup, exactly. Yeah. You know, journalists, we self-edit. So, you know, yes. we can keep it sort of, we know how to tell a story verbally yes. and audially. So, you know, we can bring it back to the start and we don't have to turn it into a big thing. But I absolutely love podcasting and mm. I love, like, there's a few political podcasts that I really enjoy. Okay. Um, and I think it's a great format, yeah. It's, it, <laughs> I want to go back to 2008, to that tumultuous time in Irish politics and, and, uh, journalism and all that. Can you tell me, where did it go wrong for Fianna Fáil? I know so many things went, went into it. Is it. Like, what stood out to me, I was watching a documentary about it last night, and Cowan, they kept saying Cowan didn't do optics, and he just wasn't the man for the, the PR that, that was necessary. But I was just asking myself, how on earth did he end up being Taoiseach in the first place? <laughs> well, Brian Cowan ended up in the Taoiseach's office simply because he was essentially anointed by Bertie Ahern. Mm. Um, and Bertie Ahern, through, the, through luck, insight, um, serendipity, got out of the gig just before the economy decided to go over the cliff, yeah. essentially. I always say that, you know, Brian Cowan, you know, he literally was appointed um, in... May 20, 2008, mm. and the economy went over the cliff almost straight away. And it wasn't his fault. No, it wasn't his fault. It was just it was, Well, it, you know, the, the, you know it, 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 the government, had, the success of go you know, previous governments had had um, a very, you know, laissez-faire attitude to controls in terms of, you know, oversight of controls of yes. what was going on in, in the central bank, what were going on in all our banks, uh, the, like, out-of-control lending practices. I mean, yeah. it was like the Klondike, you know? I mean... You know, a 20-year-old, you know, temp could go into a bank and come out with, you know, half a million mortgage. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. Um, and I just returned from the States and moved back uh, in the middle of, you know, 2006. Yeah. You know, and I think that sort of the cab driver I got in from Dublin Airport was sort of telling me about the block of apartments he'd bought in Cape Verde or Bulgaria or somewhere. And I thought, and I was coming from Manhattan, and I'm going, what's going on in this country? You know, and... All the warnings, there were a few economists that sort of said, this isn't going well, lads, yeah. and they like were ignored. And yeah, um, and they were all ignored. And there was, you know, this sort of head-in-the-sand, ostrich kind of attitude yeah. to what was going on. And, yeah. you know, it's great talk about soft landings and all that. I know. You know, you, you had sort of a... Taoiseach, who you know wasn't necessarily an economist. I mean, he had trained as a solicitor. You know, that was his his sort of background. And uh, likewise, you had a finance minister who was you know like a, a legal eagle. Yeah. So you know, you didn't have any economists. You know, in the sort of the, the main jobs. You know, at a time where we really needed people who could see the warning signs. And. You know, again, it was a, a perfect storm of a lot of what I just talked about, you know, lack of kind of oversight of regulation and, you know, allowing the banks to do their own thing. 
And obviously then, you know, we were kind of a small, as you know, a small open economy and yes. we were very, very, you know, liable to the shocks caused, you know, overseas. So like a little boat, you know, when the big waves came, you know, the nearest, you know, put us under. And, you know, I suppose the most dramatic period was, you know, the night of the bank guarantee. I mean, that was insane. That was... Two in the morning or something, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, and... That, I think, was the point where really people, Irish people, began to really pay attention to what was going on. You know, there was, it was a particularly fraught few days before that. There was rumours about bank runs and, you know, Joe Duffy was taking calls from people saying, oh, Joe, I've been down to the post office, get out me a few quid. You know, and that was causing angst in government circles. Um, and this dramatic, dramatic, I mean, almost cinematic kind of situation um, where you had... You know, the CEOs of top banks, you know, been sort of smuggled into government buildings at dead of night, you know, in smoke-filled rooms, and mostly men, of course. I don't think there was a woman in the place unless she was bringing in the tea and, sang- and sandwiches, you know. Um, and, you know, this momentous decision to, uh, you know, offer a blanket guarantee to all to all the ba- Irish banks, which, which was an incredibly strong, you know, incredible decision to make. And it was essentially made by, you know, a fairly small group of people who were persuaded into it by, uh, you know, a lot of bankers who had everything literally to lose. Yeah. Um, so 2008, you know, it, it kind of, that really kicked off probably sort of particularly two years of just awfulness. I mean, it was awful. I mean, it was, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, Dublin being, you know, you know, very down, in the, you know, a bit of a kind of an old kip. And then, you know, the Celtic Tiger making it all shiny. And then there was this period where every time you walked around town, those new shutters had rolled down on some place. You know, you went, you were sort of hadn't seen somebody around, and it turned out they had emigrated. You know, they'd yeah. to try and find work. You know, dole queues, just you know, and a general sense that nobody really knew who was in charge, what was going on. Um, Brian Cowan was a very bad communicator. He wasn't able really he didn't have the ability to kind of make those speeches to kind of rally people and yeah. rally troops and you know say to people look it'll be okay you know I mean you sort of needed that I mean along from the action you just need you did need a bit of oratory as well as action you know you do um, and it was a really bad time I mean it was really bad and the sort of 2010 was probably the worst of it you know you had a year of incredible you know instability I mean, across the whole political system, I mean, there was a famous heave against Enda Kenny, which yes. he survived by the skin of his teeth that summer in the June. And then you had those remarkable months from September 2010 to really February 2011, when you had, you know, Brian Cowan got involved in this bizarre sing-song and you know, subsequent interview, uh, you know, horse interview he Carl gave. McQuilla. With Colin McQuilla on Morning Ireland. Yeah. Um, you know, which he said he was suffering from congestion. Well, I was down in the Ardalon that weekend, and you know, I when I tiptoed, you know, off to back to my my billet at three o'clock in the morning. You know, he was still up, and there was still pints in front of him. You know, um, so uh, I mean, the next day was one of the most bonkers days I remember. Um, you know, people just trying to get the story and just, just insanity breaking out. Um, and then you know, you had that sort of slow subsidence of the government you know the greens sort of said they were going to pull out but not yet you know they were going to get the finance bill through and yeah. behave but you know once the greens said they were going that was it you know essentially yeah. and then you had that extraordinary you know two weekends at the very end of november and there was snow on the ground and it was horrible and cold and miserable and everybody was terrified 
and the government had been denying that the IMF were, were going to right come in and, and, you know, yeah, we're going to come in and bail us out. And they were absolutely adamant this wasn't going to happen. And then they gave uh, the, the Taoiseach, Brian Cowan, and the uh, Finance Minister, um, Brian Lennon, gave this press conference in government buildings to say that, yes, that the IMF were on their way. And I remember Vincent Brown standing up and speaking for all of us, as he sometimes did, and just excoriating, you know, excoriating the Taoiseach, you know, saying that, you know, you're in charge in the country, you know, you and your government have screwed this country over. Um, and if that press conference wasn't bad enough, the one the following weekend was even worse, because that was the government, basically, the, the head of government, um, his Thánaiste and... Um, the finance minister, the three of them sitting, I remember this so clearly, like they were sitting in their seats in government buildings and um, sort of saying, okay, the IMF are here. And the three of them stood up and left the stage of the press centre. And then the Troika walked on. And I remember thinking, this is it. This is our new government. This is our new government. And uh, that was one of the most depressing moments I think of ever my entire journalistic career, just realising that we'd actually lost sovereignty. The sovereignty. And, and you mentioned that was the new government in, in dull, ter dull terms. Fianna Gael have replaced Fianna Fáil for the last, what, eight years at least. And to contrast the optics of Brian Cowan with his points, with Leo Varadkar jogging with just, uh, Justin Trudeau, it's, it's, it's genuinely comical to think of that contrast. What do you think of the new shiny uh, Taoiseach that we have at the moment? How, how has he done? Because he is very concerned about the public image and he's very in tune with press advisors and, and they're investing in that heavily. How is that working out for him and, and what are your thoughts on him? Well, you know, we, all the last sort of two previous Taoiseach and the current uh, and the current Taoiseach are, you know, there's there's such different people. We had, you know, Brian Cowan. Um, then we had Enda Kenny, who was this sort of very affable West of Ireland guy. I always said, you know, he was almost um, like the opposite of Guinness. You know, he he always did much better abroad than he did at home. You know, uh, I, I frequently travelled with Enda Kenny when he went on, you know, official visits to the States and to Japan and various other places. And he was always incredibly well received, you know, and, and you know, other politicians and journalists and media abroad were incredibly impressed with his grasp of, you know, detail and his ability to speak, you know, co incoherent sentences and, you know, and his ability to connect with people. It was always, you know, quite interesting. Um, and he, I think, you know, certainly, I think one of the crucial things, and maybe one of the big elements of this, that the, how the country settled down, you know, uh, when Fine Gael and Labour formed a coalition after the 2011 election, was the relations, very close working relationship between um, the leader of the Labour Party and the Thánaiste Damon Gilmore and Enda Kenny. Yeah. And even though while things were incredibly fraught and we were still in the absolutely in the shit. Um, the, the working relationship between the two men, you know, allowed a stable government to happen and them to make decisions to try and, you know, sort of stabilise the economy and so mm. on. Now, most people would argue, and probably correctly, that you, the closeness of the relationship um, probably sounded the death knell for death knell for Labour because they were perceived as having, you know, left a lot of their the, the poor section of society swinging in the wind by adopting a lot of Finnegal's fiscal policies and so on. But there's no doubt that, you know, it did start a period of stabilisation. Mm. And then, of course, you know, Enda was replaced um, in the summer of um, 2017 by 
uh, Leo Varadkar, who was a completely different kettle of fish. You know, I mean, he was. I mean, if you look back to the Ireland we start talking about, you know, the, the notion back in the sort of late eighties that one day there would be this, you know, the, the son of immigrant parents and a gay man, like you know, as the shock of the country, you yeah. would have thought that you know somebody had slipped some magic mushrooms into your pint, you know, yeah. um, and he, he's, you know, he's again, he's a very different operator, you know, he. You know, he prides himself for very much speaking as he finds. He's a con- like, he's very contradictory. You know, he he says I'm a straight speaker, but then again, he is also very conscious of his image. Um, he, but I think laterally, um, I think he's a pra- he's a pragmatist as very much I think Enda Kenny was before him, and but not so much Brian Cowan, um, who was probably beautiful first. You know, yes. whereas yes. I think that Enda Kenny was great was a pragmatist, and I think Leo Radkers as well. Um, and he realised, I think, the necessity to try and put party politics aside to a certain extent in order, particularly after the existential threat of Brexit looms large. Um, and I think the fact that Miguel Martin and Leo Radker have, even though they don't, obviously don't particularly like each other on a personal level, but they have maintained, you know, a, a close working relationship through this rather rickety confidence and supply agreement that was put in place after the last election. And I think that would have died on its arse a long time ago, except for the the, the, Brexit, the shock of Brexit and yeah. the necessity to hold that together. Um, so you seem impressed by, by Leo to some extent. Well, I mean, you know, I'm impressed by, I think, his handling of Brexit, but I'm okay. far less impressed by his handling of a lot of other things. Okay. You know, I really am. I think that... Um, uh, you know, like many, and I think it's a problem with a lot of with every Irish government is that it tends to be reactionary, because it's rather than proactive, because yes. it's constantly thinking how it'll play back in the constituency instead yeah. of taking, you know, decisions for the greater good. And I think a lot of there's a lot of shorter termism. You know, the fact, the way that you know social housing wasn't actually built. You know, they stopped building social housing. You know, when things got better, because I never thought that actually they might get bad again. Mm. Um, the way that you know the establishment and the building of the children's hospital, um, the inability to get a tur- to just to get to grips with the health system. I mean, these are all things that can be laid on the mm. Gael government door because yeah. they've been in power since 2011. Well, I I have two more things for you, right? And and the last thing is linked to what you were just talking about. But before I ask you about the next election, mm. I want to bring us back again to 2018 mm. and Peter Casey and he got 20-something percent of the vote. And to me, his rise and the rise again of the ugly uh, sentiments of, I can't even remember her name, who's the, the journalist who... Oh, no, sorry. The journalist who is in The Independent and now she's... Gemma O'Doherty. She is in the limelight now because I think there is no conservatism in the mainstream in Ireland. So anyone on the right goes underground and they ferment in the political black market, as I've started calling it. And I think if they were allowed to be out in the open, it'd be more reasonable. And you could have a distinction between reasonable right and far right. And in, in Ireland, I don't think we have a reasonable right in the mainstream. And anyone who's willing to speak up are the loonies on the right. What do you think of that idea? Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, you know, I think conservatism has probably taken a back seat in Ireland for the last few years simply because, well, it should do, because it it ruled the roost. Mm. And I think, you know, the progress in Ireland has made in the last three or four years, you know, largely as we spoke through the two incredibly, you know, uh, exciting and seismic two referendums, um, 
which righted, you know, like righted or wrong, you know, um, and I suppose people on the more liberal end of the political spectrum, you know, sort of moved centre stage, you know, for the, you know, at that time, and rightly so, because you know they'd spent years trying to, you know, fight off people who who, who wanted to progress, to block progress. Yes. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is, you know, a mainstream conservatism that really probably hasn't really gelled around anything in particular. It no. hasn't got kind of a central voice. It's quite diffuse. Um, but the, these people danger. exist because yeah. a third of them voted no to the Eighth Amendment referendum and two-fifths of them voted no to gay marriage. So there's an awful lot of people who fear these things, but they're not being spoken for, you know? Yeah, but I, yeah, and I, I, that's a very good point. But I think within the, those groups of people who voted no, there, you know, there's also, it's not one amorphous no. You know, there would be a lot of moderate conservatives who just genuinely, you know, because of their, you know, their beliefs, maybe their religious beliefs, or they just felt that the progress was, was the pace of progress was too fast. Yeah. Um, and they've been really, you know, they've been slightly sidelined. Um, they don't really have anybody speaking to them. Um, but you have the others who are just racist and reactionary and xenophobic and misogynist and angry. And they're the ones that are kind of out there in that sort of soup. Um, and they're trying to, you know, trying to kind of gain traction. Yeah. I'm, but, I, you know, having said that, I, I'm also think that there is a danger that the sort of the liberal view is that the both sides argument, you know, is a valid one because not always. I mean, we saw Donald Trump talk about, you know, there were good people on both sides, yeah. you know, at the time of the Charlottesville uh, protests. And there is, that's, I'm always slightly worried about that because, mm. you know, you can you. be, you can be correct and you can be wrong. Mm. You know, you don't have to, it's not necessarily that you have, there's two opinions. You can be just wrong. And, you know, people who are espousing racism and xenophobia, mm. they're wrong. I get you. Um, so, you know, there's sometimes there's a bit of hand wringing saying, well, look, if we're getting this person on that, you know, to say something not racist, we need to get somebody on that says, you know, something racist because that's both sides, and I just I call that out as bullshit. Mm. Um, but, you know, again, I, you know, this is something that, you know, concerns us in, in media to a huge extent. You know, how to counter the lies and disinformation um, that's, you know, that festers out there, particularly online. Um, that gives traction to ridiculous, you know, mm. statements and you know calls to arm arms by these kind of alt right and you know, extreme right wingers. And I think you know the important thing is I think that journalism needs to do is is tool up, is literally tool up. You know, mm. I think journalists need. We we are good at learning new things, and there are some really good media group, really good groups out there that are teaching journalists how to fight fake news online. You know how to how to identify deep fakes, how to find out, you know how to identify bots, how to you know, and that's where the new war is going to be fought. Yeah. And I mean, the way to counter these, you know, it's not necessarily giving them an equal platform mm. with, you know, with reasonable people. It's not. It really isn't. Well, I, I would distinguish between Jim O'Doherty and. Gay Mitchell, for example. Do you know what I mean? So, oh, yeah, I mean, there's a world. Do you know, there, yeah, there's, there's a, world a difference. Belief, yeah, there's a world of belief between, you know, someone, you know, like, like, uh, you know, you're talking about there, like, you know, a former journalist who's just decided to, you know, go off and, you know, find, you know, like-minded people who believe in, you know, reprehensible things, yeah. and Gay Mitchell, who is a, you know, a journalist of, or 
Gay Mitchell, who's a politician of you know many years standing, who would you know who'd be respected, who represented mm. the country in Europe, who represented his constituency. You know, there's you know, and if he says things, they're they're you know out of his own experience, and you know he would have informed himself, and he'd also though be prepared to listen to the other yes. side, and could be persuaded out of other things. And you know, like you know, there is you know the the trouble is that there's everything is just so polarized. You know, you're. You know, you, there's no real room for that sort of allowing that somebody might have a point anymore. Mm. You know. Yeah. But last thing, very last thing. I know you you want to run or you have to run, but the big story in the 2019 local and European elections was the Greens, and they are back to an extent, un un unreally unpredicted. And my my take on this is. I have a huge amount of time and respect for Eamon Ryan as a human being. I thought, though, that he didn't have the savagery and the viciousness and the toughness, maybe, to survive and to grow the Greens politically. And he completely proved me wrong. And I was delighted to see that, that he managed to do that. And, and the nice, gentle guy who went to Gonzaga, lovely, you know, you know Eamon, he, he managed to, to really rally people. But he, he benefited, obviously, from the global trend and everything. What do you see happening in the election in 2020, presumably when it comes, or whenever our next general election is? Who, who will be in charge? Do you think the Greens will be in there again to, to, some, to some extent? Or who will be leading? Well, I mean, you know, I think first fair play to Eamon Ryan because, you know, when his party was annihilated um, at, in the um, 2011 election, he did, you know, he stayed on. He, you know, they, it was total wipeout. They lost all the seats, mm. but he he didn't run for the hills and no. take a nice cushy number. He stayed there and he rebuilt the party. And you have to take a hat off to him, Absolutely. no matter what you think of the Greens. That yeah. was a brave and that was a plucky decision. Um, and the Green Wave, you know, it was people were talking about a green tsunami. It it wasn't in the no. little year, but it was incredibly encouraging. Yeah. And it was bigger than green roots. It was green shoots. Um, and of course, they also took a seat in the by-election um, in Dublin Fingal yeah. um, last month. And I think this is um, augurs very well for them uh, because I think that they will probably pick up a few more seats in the next general election. Mm. They've had a bit of time because this government has la lasted longer than anybody thought, so they have had time to you know select candidates, put candidates in the field. I think they did probably better even in the in the by elections recent recent by elections than they thought mm. in with even. You know, with their other candidates down in Cork and Wexford, did quite, did actually quite well. Mm. Um, so, I think Eamon Ryan will be looking forward to twenty twenty with you know some degree of anticipation. Now, of course, the big question will be, you know, when the votes are counted, do we have another sort of slightly stalemate like we did in twenty sixteen, yes, exactly. where there's very few number of seats, you know, separates the two main parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and therefore would require some kind of rainbow coalition and do they play a part yeah. and then of course he will have the headache of depending on who how green they are whether they feel that it is more beneficial for the green party to remain in opposition exactly. and, uh, or else go into government into government and affect a change mm. now again you know there it's a generational thing as well you know if the vote come if the green vote comes out you know that could really make a huge difference yeah. um I mean, you know, even in the bubble of, you know, government buildings, you know, they, they, it is filtered through that people are genuinely quite concerned about environmental issues and climate change. And every single policy suddenly, you know, was pulled out yeah. of the bag and a few green shapes were put on it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, 
there's no doubt about it that, you know, climate change and green related issues will shape the manifestos of every single party in the next election because they will be all hunting down that green vote. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, the greening of Ireland and that particular non-Republican sense, you know, will happen in the next election. Um, and I think what I would love to see is the energy harnessed by that young vote for the you know, the two referendums on social issues, the home to the incredible home to vote, which still gives me, you know, puts the hair up in the back of my neck when I think about that. It was incredible, unbelievably emotional to see all those kids coming home to vote. Um, I think if that sort of same energy is 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 I suppose injected into, you know, the green the green party and green issues. I mean it you know, you could see it being a really significant election for them. Then then, then Eamon's got a, you know, he could be kingmaker, you know. Um, like so, the whole thing? No. No, but he could be the he could be the one that'll decide, you know, the shape of the next I government, guess. which Sorry, is yeah, yeah. yeah, which goes to show that you know, like you're never really dead and buried in politics. Mm. Yeah, if you hang in there long enough. If you hang in long well, enough. Yeah. One little example of the a potential stomping ground for the Greens would be Dunleary, Mary Mush O'Connor. I don't know how well she's performed. She might survive. Maria Bailey's gone. Sean Barrett will be gone. So that's yeah. at least two Fine Gael openings. I don't know about Richard yeah. Bobart, but Oshin Smith there, he's now the, the chair of, um, yeah, well, uh, the, of, of Dunleary County Council. So that's a, a perfect opportunity for them to kind of capitalise. And again, a nice, gentle man. He, he's not a big, loud... Well, you know yeah. what I mean. So, yeah, I mean, so it's, they're, it's, they're, it's the time to, is coming it is. at I mean, the good you know, time. For them. Certainly, any constituency with you know, along the seaboard anywhere, and we are an island, so that's a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, is going to have a certain issue in you know a certain kind of mind to green-related issues, given yeah. you know the the effect of rising seas and so on. Then again, you that's also tempered by the farmers who obviously you know have want no hand actor part in a, a lot of the green initiatives. You know, to cull the, the national dairy herd and the, or the national cattle herd. So, you know, it could go well for them in some parts and well in the other. But yes. you know, but once look, it's going to be a fascinating election, and it's going to be a, I, the last thing I will say um, is I predict it will be quite a dirty election. Um, I kind of liken Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, you know, to a bunch of kids who've been cooped up in the back of a car on a really long journey, you know, and they've been kind of kept quiet with iPads and chocolates and sweets, and they kind of get to the destination, the doors open, and they all kind of fall out and start baiting the head off each other, and it's just pure adrenaline because they've just been cooped up together too long, yeah. you know? So I suspect that we might see a bit of that in the next yeah. election. Uh, who's the next T-shirt? No comment. <laughs> I am absolutely not making a comment on that. Uh, yeah. Lise, thanks a million. No I really appreciate you joining me today. Great to be here, Marcus. Thanks a million.